Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This week's episode marks the third in our series related to the Major Dade Memorial March Virtual Challenge. This exercise journey takes you from the Bayside site of Old Fort Brook in Tampa, past Fort Foster in Hillsborough County, and through the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park in Bushnell to the reconstructed Fort King in Ocala. Registration is now open for entrance. Just visit SeminoleWars.us for details. We launched the mission officially December 22nd. While you're performing your daily aerobic routines, why not listen to some of our past episodes while you're at it? This is an excellent opportunity to hone your knowledge by using these podcasts as a primer while you walk or run or tiptoe or march or roller skate or you get the idea. Now, on to this episode. In modern times, there have been three formal treks commemorating Major Dade's march from Fort Brooke to catastrophe near present-day Bushnell. The first was in 1963, the second was in 1988, and a third was in 2004. In this episode, Ross Lamoureux returns to the Seminole Wars podcast to describe what that third march and his first was like and what perils these marchers encountered along that most dangerous stretch of the old Fort King military road called modern U.S. Route 301. Ross then spends a little time explaining what it means to be a living historian military reenact at sites such as the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park, where he often portrays soldiers and sometimes portrays an individual, Captain Gardner, from Dade's column. Ross Lamoureux, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Thank you very much. Ross, you completed a 65-mile march from Tampa to Bushnell. What was that like? Well... We as reenactors are always looking at ways to improve our historical knowledge, our material culture, but we felt one of the greatest ways to be able to interpret the battle is to actually physically understand what the men went through. So back in 2004, a group of us decided that we would like to actually replicate the march of the men from Fort Brooke to the battlefield itself. James Jesse Marshall, or Archie as many of us know him, was the pushing drive to make this occur with the addition of Matt Milnes, Gary Grafway, Eric Steffi, and Eric Arjuski and myself. Uh, we decided a few months prior to uh, make this happen. So we worked with local law enforcement agencies and local jurisdictions because we would have to go through four different counties. We wanted to do it as accurately as possible with arms and equipment, and you can imagine what that would be like marching down basically Highway 301 with uh, 1816 flintlocks and equipment. But we had a man named Steve Saunders, who uh, unfortunately it's past since, who was a major with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, who was very instrumental in coordinating and liaising with the various agencies. On December 26 in 2004, we decided to leave Fort Brook area. There was no fort, of course, left as a convention center, but for symbolic reasons, started from the historic marker there. And we went in the middle of the night to avoid rush hour traffic through Tampa. But we began our first leg, and using the best knowledge we had of the Fort King Road and the modern roads that were available, we marched over the next four days, camping close to where the bivouac sites were for the army 
Army. Along the way, we were carrying the arms and equipment these men were. We brought along period rations, etc. And it was very surreal as we marched on the shoulder of roads along the way, getting stares and questions. We were interviewed on local radio. There were mentions on local television. But this was a time where you know history came to life. For this group of men, it was an incredible collection of shared misery, sore feet, tired backs. But I think for us, it really gave us an incredible understanding to a lesser degree what these men went through on the march itself to the battle. Ross, how did this march differ from Frank Laumer's two marches? There have been some other marches and collective efforts through the years through Frank Lommer. In prior years, they were different in that they were a mixture of folk in modern streetwear and people could come and go each day. So Jerry and, and Frank were involved in the earliest efforts prior to ours. So this was a, a separate entity. Unlike Dade's column, you didn't start out with two oxen pulling a 1,000-pound limber and cannon and carriage with you. No, we did miss out on quite a bit there, for sure. That was just something that we couldn't quite put together, fun as that would have been. And you saved your back from strain from trying to cross a river pulling a cannon. Indeed. We, <laughs> it's funny you bring up the rivers. Now with the modern roads, there are modern bridges. And so we had debated along the way, knowing that there weren't bridges on the march, we debated if we were gonna actually ford the rivers ourselves just to experience that. And the initial agreement was we were going to, and then a very weird cold front blew through on the first day of our march. Uh, <laughs> it got so cold that we decided, okay, boys, uh, we're gonna take this concession. We continued to march along the roads and use the bridges. We did cheat there. Did you complete this march in the same number of days as Dade's column did? We did it in real time. So we marched for four days, and then into the fifth day, we reached the battlefield. Uh, we did it in conjunction with the reenactment that's held that particular time, so that the real-time march led us right to the battlefield, but the day before the battle reenactment. We would have loved to have had a year that fell in line to where we literally just marched into the battle. That had been one of our goals, but we were one day off in using the real timeline. So we came and arrived the day before the actual battle reenacted. Did you camp out overnight and how did you prepare victuals? We did. We slept on the ground as Dave's men did with no tentage or shelters, just using blanket uh, overcoats and any ground cloths they may have. We camped in sites as close to the original bivouacs as possible based on the records. So we were able to use some state land and county land for a couple of these and a private museum, the Pioneer Museum in Dade City graciously allowed us. But each night we uh, just flopped out on the ground, built a fire. Our rations were carried on us in our haversack using what we knew of as army rations for the time. So salt pork, beans, some beef. So yeah, we carried our food, carried our water. The one concession that we had for safety and modern purposes is we had a fellow reenactor with a vehicle on standby with a radio. And we had radios for communication if there was an emergency, if there was uh, medical issues. We would get water. Uh, we didn't really want to dip into the rivers and streams along the way. But we had that benefit of having a modern safety valve with that vehicle. And no one had to stay up to guard against attacks from Seminole. Didn't have to, but that is actually something that we did. We did stand watch each night. Each man had a couple hour watch that they would have had during that time. 
So you mentioned that you got there just the day before the annual reenactment. What's the value of commemorating this battle through a reenactment and just commemorating it in general? The commemoration is twofold in that we have the battle reenactment for the general public to get a greater visual understanding. Uh, when we have a certain number of men portraying both soldiers and Seminoles, they get the visual effect of the battle. Having it on the actual land is symbolically important to us. That's been secondary to the actual anniversary date. On the actual date of the battle, wherever it lies during the week, we have also held a commemoration ceremony at the battlefield. So every year, December 28, we gather both as modern public and reenactors to do that ceremony. And then we host the reenactment uh, generally after that because we've decided for modern practicalities to always host the battle reenact the first full weekend in January away from the holiday. That way we've got people away. We don't have to worry about Christmas and New Year's falling in. The ceremony and the reenactment, they're just both a respect for what occurred historically and a great tool in an entertaining and enlightening way for the public to get just a basic understanding of battles that happened in real time. So the commemoration ceremony on the actual day is at the actual battlefield site, but the reenactments are not held there. Why is this? Twofold. Archaeologically, we don't want to destroy the land of the battlefield, and also spirit-wise. Some view that as disrespectful when you're hosting a mock event on that land. It's very hallowed lands. We are a few hundred yards away in the same park doing that, but we don't disturb the battlefield for both spiritual, psychological reasons and to honor those men. The memorial service, however, we do at the actual site. We're not disturbing the land there. I think it's important for us as reenactors and living historians to be very respectful of anything that we're portraying in any land. So it was decided long ago to not have the mock fight on the actual land. I would say there's a third reason, which is that it's a fairly cramped area and it would be hard for the public to see it because you couldn't bring the public that close. That's very true. Uh, I know in initial uh, reenactments, they had tried it out on the actual spot. Where it's occurring now as a beautiful natural hillside, kind of like an amphitheater, because several thousand folks actually come every year to see this. So, yeah, I have a good point that it'd be really hard to see as a visual. And it's kind of a quandary that we have. We want to show the accuracy of the actual terrain features, the cover and concealment used, yet still make it visible for the public and I think we meet both of those at its current location. We have almost like a play or a theater show. We as reenactors have the cover and concealment that we need but we have a nice open area for spectators to see the, the whole thing and develop visually. The reenactors pay for their own kit. They do indeed. Uh, this is 100% volunteer. We do not get paid for these events although we're treated very well by the state and the support organizations we try to provide at least meals for the time a, an area to camp and also the blank rounds that are used for the battle itself being a reenactor in the seminole wars era is not like other historical eras civil war world war ii where there's a variety of merchants that offer in this case it's a niche historical period so many of us have to either create our own or know people who do whether that's sewing uniforms the leather equipment the muskets and rifles so the desire to even reenact this battle has to be greater than other eras because of that difficulty. What differentiates the day battle is that dedication to history that most of us have. When it's harder to get something, you know, I go back to having to create a lot of our own uniforms and equipment. 
when it's harder to procure those items, you tend to have a little more dedication to the era. Knowing that it costs several thousand dollars to do an accurate impression, there are ways we can try to offset some of that. But by and large, an individual who's portraying either a soldier or a Seminole is doing so at great personal expense. But they do it for the love of sharing, the love of teaching. Uh, yeah, every reenactor has some different reasons. Some are personal and geared towards the self, but I think by and large, most reenactors do it for that ability to share their knowledge. And Ross, there are folks like you and Archie Marshall who will do an inspection of the reenactors. And if they're not wearing period uniforms, they're wearing Civil War garb or something, they're out. We try to do it in a fair and balanced way. We don't want to be big meanies and say, oh, well, you can't be part of this club. We're doing this to give the most accuracy to the material cult and mindset of people that we can in this modern day. We understand that many of these things are difficult to acquire. There are details of the uniforms, for instance, that are beyond the capability of a lot of historical victims. So with that in mind, we don't want to be exclusive. And, and keep people out. We ourselves have kind of turned into our own guild of craftsmen so that we can help new folks that want to do this or help the older folks that want to increase their accuracy. So what we have done is formed almost like old-fashioned sewing circle where we can now, through Archie Marshall and several others, create patterns, cut out and actually sew uniforms. We have other craftsmen who can make cap, others who can do the leather work. And then the Seminole side has always been very individually handcrafted. So many of the Seminoles I know take great pride in making their own clothing based on historical research. And Seminoles get a little more latitude as to what they wear because it was so highly personal colors and things and they're using the best knowledge that we have currently to produce as accurate as possible an impression yet be inclusive of people. I can think of very few times where we've actually not allowed somebody to participate. We've always tried to find a way to get them involved whether that's loaning equipment or overlooking certain things. It goes back to the very first events they had. They wanted to do it so desperately and there were no commercial sources for the proper soldier's cap for instance big tall leather forage caps. So they created them out of paper bags glued together and spray painted black. I like to think we've come a long way since then, but that was the mindset to do this. Any way possible to, to use an object to, to make it authentic. And we continue to develop that research year by year by year. We have learned new things just in the 20 plus years that I'm doing it. Every year something else comes out through research. And we try to stay up on top of those research trends as well. On a side note, I saw Archie Marshall down at reenactment of the Battle of Okeechobee, and reenactor had like half a uniform. And so he said, I'm a fight with the militia. And that worked. As you say, you found a way that the person could participate. Absolutely. There's several ways we do this. The folks like me and Archie and a few others who are very serious, we tend to collect and buy anything and everything relevant to the era and keep it. That way we can loan equipment, we can sell it to people who are really interested. None of this is a big profit-making venture by any means. Again, it falls back to we spend thousands of dollars to look like homeless people is the inside joke. But with seriousness, any way that we can help bring somebody else new into this 
and include them in history. It's our history. It's everyone's history. And it's super important to us to find a way to bring people in. I've been to the reenactments. That day, one of the things that I learned personally was seeing that while we're told that the soldiers had 1816 muskets and the Seminole had modern rifles because they actually bargained and traded to get the modern ones and the soldiers were stuck with what the army would issue them, it was fascinating to see how they both operated them and that the Seminole in conducting an ambush or an attack that they initiated, the reason they were able to take out 50% of Dade's men is because they had already loaded their rifles and packed it with time on their hands. But that in subsequent firings, they kept rounds in their mouth and they didn't pack it as well. And so they were less accurate. Or if they did hit, we have accounts where somebody says, well, it tore a little hole in my uniform, but it didn't do anything. I would never have had that concept visualized for me unless I had gone to a reenactment and saw how they were actually operating. How much of this goes into how reenactors conduct the battle? Wholeheartedly, that kind of research comes to the forefront when we reenact. To, to address that particular, historically, I think what happened is there was a balance. The Seminoles had the better technology. The Army had the better training. So it became an equalizer. But the way we can demonstrate that at a reenactment is you can physically see the difference between a civilian or modern rifle versus the musket used by the Army. So you physically see that, but we can demonstrate it one-on-one, -on -one going through every step that it took to load that and seeing how cumbersome these work. And you're able to see through the reenactment how the time differences work, how it can be quicker to load a musket as opposed to a rifle. And we can explain in real time how fouling of powder gets involved in a rifle, how you can under or overcharge a round. How if you're not paying attention, you can burst the barrel with too much powder. These are all visuals that we can add to what we talk to people. One of the key things about a reenactor is the ability to tell a story. Some of us are adept at being able to tell a story using our visuals. Others may overtell a story. I've been guilty of that, of over-talking. But a successful historical interpreter or reenactor is able to gauge the public's ability to accept information, too. You don't want to talk until their eyes roll back in their head, but you want to provide anything that either they ask about and want to know or have the ability to kind of see what they need to know. And that's the trick. So again, these things that we do are very visual, but add to the mental makeup of what occurred. And reenacting is one of the few ways, I think, that you take material culture and true research and combine them. Talk about historical figures that you've played in the Dade reenactment and why you chose them. Uh, through the years, I've had several. Uh, I start out like most as a generic private of one of the regiments. We try to actively portray the three active duty regiments, the 2nd and 3rd U.S. Artillery and the 4th Infantry Regiment. My personal background is knowing more about infantry, so I've tended to be an infantry private or NCO of the 4th Infantry most of the time. Uh, several years ago, as the hierarchy for the event has aged and, and either moved on or passed on, the leadership roles have trickled down to those of us who care and so I've had the great honor the last few years of portraying Captain George Washington Gardner of the artillery who was the senior surviving officer during the battle one of the last ones to die. By and large, we don't replicate actual individuals at the battle, except for some of the key personnel. So for me, the ability to have an actual person gives me a lot of seriousness 
and a reason to research things. So whether I'm a private in the line or the orderly sergeant for the infantry or playing Captain Gardner himself, it's a great honor to know that these were actual people. It gives us a lot of reason to do it right the best way we can. How do you portray him? I try to portray that aspect of running around and, and yelling, uh, but bearing in mind modern sensibilities, I try not to swear as much. I think the one liberty I could detect in the Dade battle reenactment is that Major Dade is sort of helped off his horse after he's shot, whereas in reality, we understand he was shot through the heart and fell right off. But there's a safety consideration, and so usually I see the person playing Louis Pacheco sort of help him off the horse and then lay him on the ground. That's one of the key ones. There are several things that we have to do for modern safety as a concession. That's one of them. The wholesale chopping down of trees to build the barricades is another one. <laughs> we have some pre-positioned trees that the state was going to take down anyway. And then we also have a lot of down lumber that we pretend to be chopping down. That's another concession that we have to do for time and safety. Successful reenacting is when someone can suspend disbelief for a certain amount of time. And by and large, that's what we try to do. But there are things that we're always not going to quite be able to get around. The narrators are one reenactor portraying Private Ransom Clark kind of in a daze, but then there's a Seminole who talks about the Seminole side. This gives you a very useful balance for the public in educating them on this, that it was not a quote-unquote black and white situation. I think it's one of the most important things that we do at that event. We narrate it. it. When watching it, it's almost like being in a play. We're doing it in close to real time and spread out, but these two are able to tell the story as narrators a little more freely than we are in the middle of a battle. So they're able to take the actual information, stand off to the side, yet still be part of it. You are hearing the story as it's unfolding, and they're merely narrators but it adds so much to gathering perspective of what's going on. It would be one thing to watch the battle and be entertained and enlightened at the same time, but it's another level to understand and take what you're seeing and take that information to understand, and those narrators are vital. It's not anything that I've seen in other reenactments. It's unlike any other, and I think that's what makes this one even more special. How long have you been reenacting at the Dade Battlefield? I have been doing the Dade Battle since 2000. In 20 years since you've been doing this, how have the numbers of actual Seminole participating increased? I have seen it kind of ebb and flow. In the first years that I reenacted, they're roughly about the same number as today. The difference, I think, is in the number of what we call white Seminoles versus actual Seminoles has changed. What I'm also seeing in conjunction with that is the seriousness and acceptance from the tribe. Split that into two parts. One, not every Seminole reenactor is Seminole or even Native. There are oftentimes white folks who initially was to stand in to create the numbers. But what we found on the second part of that is that many of these whites have either some Native background or are just fascinated with Native culture. And so the incredible part about this is even though they're technically fillions for actual Seminoles, they are immersing themselves in the culture and become adept interpreters as well. And I'm starting to see more acceptance from the tribe on that. There are some individuals very well respected. Steve Creamer, Chris Kimball are names that come to mind that are historians first and reenactors second and bring a, a wonderful native interpretation. By and large, it's fairly easy to tell at a glance at this, these events who 
actually need even who aren't, but they are integral to what we do. To go back to your original question, what we're finding in that ebb and flow is we have perhaps less actual seminal participation and more white, but more, much more serious historical knowledge on both from the Seminoles and the whites that portray Seminoles. And we hover in the 40 to 50 man range each year on the Seminole side, but in the last 20 years, much more attention to historical details is being done no matter who portrays. Is there friction between what you do as living historians and academic historians? More and more, you're seeing, if not a welcoming to the community, you're seeing an acceptance of certain living history aspects in the academic world. For years, there's been kind of a rift between the academic historical world and the reenacting world, and for good reason. You go to some reenactments and they're little better than a carnival with blanks, and through time with the right people in the right spot, we put just as much focus into the research and educational aspect as we do the material culture. So therefore, reenacting becomes much more than just playing cowboys and Indians with cool toys. We're able to use the cool toys in conjunction with research and present that. Some are better than others. I don't try to say that all reenactors are historians, but I think within the Dade battle, there are more historians who are reenactors than in other places. It all goes together very well. Where I've seen reenactors be successful in academic learning the most is through military staff rides, for instance where officers are coming to look at a battlefield and there are reenactors who are excellent at presenting the material culture and the battle. And I think from that staff ride mindset, we are now seeing more and more living history guys becoming better speakers, better researchers, and having a better ability. The rift is still there and I think will always be there, but the gap is closing in. More and more you're seeing acceptance. What do you do down at the Tampa Bay History Center? I am what's called a historical interpreter in that I help train volunteers and docents, guide tours, do living history programs. And I actually took reenacting into a professional historical career, but I'm probably more an exception than the rule for sure. What can one find at the center that's related to the Seminole Wars? Tampa Bay History Center is a wonderful facility uh, that is kind of the depository of all things history for the city of Tampa and Hillsborough County. We have several different exhibit collections of artifacts and descriptors of the Day Battle, the Seminole Wars, and an entire gallery dedicated to the Seminole tribe that I think is wonderful. But there's two things in particular no one else has for Seminole Wars that are important. Number one is we actually have the original headstone to Private Ransom Clark, one of the survivors of the battle. Years ago, Mr. Frank Lommer was able to replace an old worn out stone with a modern VA marker, and he was able to keep that, and he donated that marker to us and it is in a place of honor in our war stories gallery and then another thing we have that's a little more modern we have a very interactive movie that is told in the perspective of two people in the war Kawakachi or Wildcat one of the Seminole chiefs and Lieutenant Sprague of the 8th U.S. Infantry Regiment. And these were taken directly from his words published in his book, The Florida War, written after the war. But we've created an almost Disney-esque movie, very interactive, where you are part of the show. There are revolving monitors and backdrops to where at one point you're sitting in Fort Brooke looking out over the water, and at other parts you're in the middle of the Battle of Okeechobee, for instance. So we take the best of modern 
things, create an entertaining show, but at the same time, an educational show. So the History Center, I'm very proud of what we do for that period of history, particularly, if not all the other areas. Ross Lemerow, thanks again for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Thank you. It's my pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted, the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rudy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.